I want to begin by asking you a question. If Cam can do the first slide. So what do you think of when you think of Easter? Chocolate, okay, yeah, some of the things. Easter bunnies. The tomb, we got a spiritual one. Bang holidays, okay. Yeah, if, if, if you go, if you ask Google what, what Easter's all about, if you go, if you type in Google, and uh, it's not type in Google, if you go to Google and you type in Easter in Google uh, and go to the, the images, you'll get some images like these. <laughs> Which is what, what you were saying. This is kind of a lot of what people think about when they think of Easter. But as, as Christians, we're remembering something different, which has already been alluded to so far in the service, which is this. Right, we're remembering the empty tomb. But we can't remember the empty tomb unless we also remember what preceded that, which was the crucifixion of Jesus. But this couldn't really be any, far, like, couldn't really be much more different to the fluffy bunnies and the little chicks and the eggs, could it? Like, this is quite an uncomfortable picture to be looking at but this is what Christians are remembering and celebrating today when we remember uh, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. Right, and there's a message that God wants us to understand from this. Right, but that message is sometimes like confusing and not always easy to, to understand. And it doesn't really help necessarily when we see uh, images of the cross around in society in lots of different places. Right, we see them uh, like, next slide. And one again. So this is Ozzy Osbourne. Right, this is Ozzy Osbourne, and he wears a cross round his neck. Right, and myself and the teams, we were laughing the other day, because um, I don't know if you've been noticing recently, Andy sometimes dresses all in black. And, and he, has a big long, he has a big long jacket, and he wears a cross. And, I'm like, and he was preaching the other day, and it was very distracting watching that happen. But, you know, this is Ozzy Osbourne, and he wears a cross. Next one. Right, this is Justin Timberlake, right? And he's got one tattooed on his left shoulder. Right, and again, right, and here's 50 Cent and he wears a cross around his neck. Like, there's people all around the place that they tattoo it on themselves, they wear it around their, their necks. I went to visit a friend uh, in Ireland a week or so ago and his, uh, I met a lot of his family members and a lot of them have crosses in their cars or statues of various things. We see this all the time, but do we really understand what it means? You know, if you listen to these guys' music, it's a little confusing as to whether or not they've really understood what the cross is all about. Right, but in um, in First Corinthians chapter chapter one, right? Uh, I'm actually not going to not going to read from there just to, for time's sake. But uh, Paul makes a, a statement that the, the cross is it's foolishness to those who are perishing. It is it is does seem crazy. He says to the Jews it's a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles it's foolishness. Now, you know, if you think from the Jews' perspective, they're expecting a Messiah, someone that would rescue them, someone that would lead them out of their uh, bondage to the Romans and stuff. But then there's Jesus, and he's a carpenter's son. Right? He's not very well educated according to the education of their day. And then ultimately he gets killed on a cross. I mean, it's not really what they expected. And neither from the perspective of the Gentiles, which are the non-Jews, here's a, a guy in a small part of the world whose people are saying that he's God, but he died on a cross. And he died, not just died, but he, he died on a cross, a criminal's death. It doesn't really make sense. And even for ourselves, when we think about it today, like, it still can be difficult to wrap our heads around. I mean, you see, first of all, I think what's most obvious is the injustice that's in the cross. Now, like, here's Jesus, who's a, an innocent person, being killed in a very gruesome way. 
Yeah, and we, um, but this is supposed to have something to do with us, you know. But we ask, we are left with the question of how can a guy dying on a cross 2,000 years ago affect my life today? You know, why was it that Jesus had to suffer and die? You know, there is just something that doesn't seem at first glance to make much sense, but if you, if you continue reading in 1 Corinthians, you'll see that, if you read it in your own time, you'll see that Paul actually makes a statement that this is, that the message of the cross is the power of God. Although it looks foolish and it looks like almost idiotic to, to us, if, it's actually a statement from God of God's power, His plan. He goes on to say that because of what Jesus is doing in this, in this situation, that we, we are able to become righteous and holy in God's sight. Like there's something about what's going on that has an enormous implication for us in our own lives. And I want to go some way today to try to explain the cross and the resurrection to you. Now there's a lot to it, right? so don't expect me to cover everything, but I want to go some way into explaining why this is significant and why it means something special to us. If you'd like to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. This time I am going to read from 1 Peter. Is everyone there? Yep. In First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, it reads, For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were deemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead, and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now this scripture is telling us that God had this plan to uh, sacrifice Jesus before the creation of the world. Before any of this world was even even in, in its being, God had this plan. That means that it was even before lambs were created, even before blood was created, even before everything, God had this plan. And yet he still went ahead with it. You know, why was this part, part of God's plan? Why was God doing this? Like, what, what was God trying to tell us through this? I think in understanding this, we need to go back to the Old Testament, right? Because it refers to Jesus here as being a, like a perfect sacrifice. He talks to him about being a, a sacrificial lamb. And to understand that, we need to go back to the Old Testament. So if you turn with me to Levit- Leviticus chapter 4. It's important, important to realize about uh, the Old Testament that it, its intention was to lay a foundation of understanding for us to make sense of Jesus' sacrifice. It was supposed to lead us to Jesus according to Galatians chapter 3. So bear that, bear that in mind as we go on now to read uh, from Leviticus chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 27. It says, If any member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden... In any of the Lord's commands, when they realize their guilt and the sin they have committed becomes known, they must bring as their offering for sin they committed a female goat without defect. They are to lay their hand on the head of the offering and slaughter it at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest is to take some of the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. They shall remove all the fat, just as the fat is removed from the fellowship offering, and the priest shall burn it 
on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. So this is what this is what to do if someone unintentionally sins. Right? If someone had intentionally sinned and it had been proven that they had intentionally sinned, then there'd usually be a punishment. But this is if someone unintentionally sinned. Right? And it's actually painting quite a shocking picture. Isn't it? It's quite a shocking picture when you think about what the picture is. I mean, what's, what's supposed to happen is the person is going to is, puts their hand on the head of the animal and then they reach around with their other hand to slit the, the animal's throat. Right? And you're having to hold that animal and, you'll be, and it'll be twitching, it'll be trying to move out of the way and you slit its throat and you see the blood pour out of the animal and you feel it twitching and shaking and you feel the life leaving the animal. It's a pretty gruesome picture, you know. If, if this was happening, you know, more often today, it would certainly make the headlines. People would be protesting, you know, animals have rights, you shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. Like, it is a gruesome picture, right? And it would look something like this. You know, it's a pretty gruesome, horrible picture, right? We don't have to keep it up there. You can move it away. But it, it's a pretty horrible looking picture. Right? But the idea, though, is that you would be able to feel what is happening to the animal. Right? And if the Old Testament is laying a foundation of understanding for us to understand Jesus' sacrifice, there must be something in this that we're supposed to be understanding about Jesus. You know, something's going on here in this animal sacrifice that tells us something about the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, in the Old Testament, they, they, you know, it was a kind of an understanding that people used to think that when they put their hand on the animal, the guilt would somehow transfer down them into that animal. That that innocent animal would then become guilty. It would bear the guilt of that person. Right? Or they also used to think that maybe the sin of the person was equal to the life of an animal. Right, but I think there's actually something else going on that they're supposed to understand. And, that, and that's that you know, when there's sin, innocence is sacrificed. Now you think about it, the first time that you sinned, you lost your own innocence. Or maybe you caused someone else to lose their innocence as well. There's an innocence being lost. You know, when there's a sin, a sacrifice must be made. You know, for our sin, God has made a perfect sacrifice, and that sacrifice is Jesus. You know, if you were to do a study of the book of Acts, sadly we don't have time to, to go through, the, through this, but um, if you look at the, the sermons that the, the early Christians preached, you'll see something about what they're saying that's kind of a theme. And one of, the, one of those themes is that they are giving responsibility to, to the, the death of Jesus, the crucifix of Jesus, to the people that they're preaching to. Even though these people were not present at the, at the death of Jesus, they were not the ones whipping Jesus, they were not the ones that, that falsely accused him and, and whatever. They played no part in it, but yet they being given this guilt. You know, people complained about them. Why are you trying to make me, or are you trying to make us guilty of his death? But there's a message in here that somehow we play a role in what happened to Jesus. You know, in some sense, somehow we are guilty of what happened to Jesus. And, and in, in, in the Old Testament, as we just talked about, you know, when, when either the priest or yourself sacrificed the lamb or the goat or, you know, you were accepting a responsibility for what for, for that lamb you were saying that this is happening to this animal because of me you know and there's something happening 
in the cross that God is trying to get us to take responsibility for. There's, some, there's a message in there that God wants us to accept something about ourselves and something about him. Now, what is the connection between sacrifice and forgiveness? Like, you know, has anyone in this room ever forgiven someone before? Yeah. What does it mean to forgive someone? Yeah, you have to sacrifice your right for justice. You know, can you earn forgiveness? You know, can you can you buy forgiveness from someone? No. Forgiveness is something interesting. It's something that you can only ever give to someone. You can only ever give forgiveness. You know, and, and the truth is that when you forgive, you do have to sacrifice your right to justice, your right to retribution. You have to give something up. And the truth is that to forgive is to sacrifice. You know, and I think it's easy sometimes to think that if we, that the, the role of sacrifice within forgiveness is that if we sacrifice enough, then we're, we're kind of, we're worthy of forgiveness or we'll kind of make them forgive us. But sacrifice is always on behalf of the person that is doing the forgiving. You know, has anyone ever done something to you? Has anyone ever hurt you in such a way and then they've been very quick to say sorry? You know, or you've kind of, you know, you kind of, you're having the conversation when they're apologizing, but you get that feeling that they don't really understand what they've done. Like, they don't really know what it is that they're saying sorry for. You know, is it, is it difficult then to really kind of accept an apology in that? Like, it's, we, we, there's, there's a part of us that wants them to understand what we, what, like, the pain that we felt and what we went through and stuff, so that they can actually, we feel like then they can, then they can really actually say sorry, because then they actually understand. You know, part of saying sorry is saying that I understand what you feel. You know, and we have that desire to, to want to be understood. No, but what about God? What's, what's it like for God to forgive us? Like, how does it feel for God to forgive you? You know, I think sometimes we think that it's easy for God to forgive us. Right? You know, that, that we just think it's really, it's just easy for Him. God is forgiveness. You know, God is just, just a love. It's almost like He, can't, he actually he just can't help it. Like it's almost like it's a weakness of his. He just has no control. He just has to forgive everything. Like he's got no backbone and no choice whatsoever. Right? But I don't think it was really necessarily very easy for God. You know, how many of you have watched The Passion of the Christ before? Does it look easy to you? No, I mean, what does it look like? It looks like a pretty. It looks like a pretty hard work. It looks pretty horrendous, right? You know, there's a there's a picture just from the film. I mean, that doesn't look easy. That does not look easy at all. You know, our forgiveness is God giving up something. It's God giving up His right to justice. You know, it is unjust for God to forgive us. It's definitely unjust for God to forgive us. You know, but you have to think for a second though. Does God need? The cross. Does he need the cross to forgive us? You know, is, is God somehow submitting to some higher power than himself that determines that this is how it needs to be? It needs to be the cross. Like, is, is there no other way? Is God not capable of forgiving us without the cross? 
You know, is he just so angry and so kind of just mad at us that he just has to take it out on himself? Cut off his own right hand, like punish his own son just to kind of appease his own anger and frustration with us. Like it, there's something that doesn't really make sense in that. You know, if, if, if our punishment for our sin, according to Romans, is, is death, is separation from God, is an eternal separation from God, then how does that equate to Jesus' suffering on the cross? Like, does Jesus' suffering on the cross equate to eternal separation from God? You know, like, if Jesus is simply bearing our punishment, like, if that's his role, to take our punishment, then why does he not take our place in hell? Like, I think there must be something more going on. There's something more to this this picture, this message of the cross. I think God is trying to tell us something. You know, don't you think that God would want you to know how much it cost him to forgive you? Don't you think God would want you to know how much it hurt him what you did to him when you sinned? You know, from, from back to what I was saying just earlier, you know, that we want people to understand what they've done to us when we're having some reconciliation with them. All right? Don't you think that God also wants you to understand how, what, it, what was happening in his heart when you sinned against him and when he chose to forgive you? You know, what does it feel like for God to forgive you? You Cam, you can go back a picture. It feels like that. That's what it feels like for God. You know, God wants us to know how difficult it is. You know, the cross is a statement that God is, is making to us about the suffering undertaken by him in forgiving us. You know, and if the cross is a statement of God's, of what God endured to forgive us, then it tells us something very important about God. You know, and that is that reconciliation is more important to God than making sure you get what you deserve. The reconciliation is what's most important to God. It's a, it's a statement of God's mercy. God is saying, I'm willing to forgive you. you know, I'm willing to go through this in order to be reconciled with you. You know, the, the cross, it's already happened. It happened 2,000 years ago, right? But the opportunity still remains for you to accept your personal responsibility in what happened. You know, as in the Old Testament, when they had to lay their hand on the animal, right, and accept that what was about to happen to this animal happened because of them, we have that same opportunity today to accept that what happened to Jesus happened because of us. Because God, we're, we're accepting the fact that we caused God this pain. We caused God this suffering. This is what God endured because of us in order to forgive us. You know, and God desperately wants us to be reconciled to him, obviously. Like, he certainly got our attention by what he did, right? We're still remembering it 2,000 plus years later, right? But God has a great hope for us. And that brings us on to talking about the resurrection, the empty tomb. Like, have you ever thought about like, what would have happened if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead? Like, have you ever thought about if, it, if Jesus had just died on the cross and that was it, final, would there still be much to talk about? You know, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15.
Yeah, Alex has already been, uh, has already read today from 1 Corinthians 15. It is a really great passage of scripture talking about the resurrection of Jesus. But I'm just going to pick up on a, on one section of it in verse 12. So I'm going to read from verse 12. It says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. We have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's making some pretty strong statements here. It's slightly confusing to understand some of the way in which Paul structures his sentences, but the statements are pretty clear. You know, that you're... Well, let's, let's go back and read them. It says, you know, that... You are to be you are to be pitied beyond all people. That your faith is futile, like it's pointless. Like why bother? You know why is that the case? I mean, like why such strong statements? You know, if you think about Jesus' life, Jesus did many miracles as it, when he was alive. He spent a lot of his time healing people, and you know, in various different ways of leprosy, giving them back their sight, and these kinds of things. And these things were done to testify to who he was and his divine nature. Right, and he, his last and greatest miracle was going to be his own resurrection. And, and uh, Scott read at the beginning a great scripture that, that testified to that. We're just going to look at another one. There are lots of them. Um, so just to prove a point, we're going to look at another one in Matthew 17. If you'd like to turn there with me. You know, Jesus predicted his own resurrection. In Matthew, in Matthew 17, verse 22, it said, When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. <coughs> it's pretty clear. It's a pretty clear statement. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to come back to, to life three days later. right? And this was, this was said to his disciples, but he, he made it clear to other people as well. In John chapter 2, just after Jesus has cleared the temple, right, the Jews are obviously upset with him for what he's doing, kicking them out of the temple, and they demand of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus responds to them. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Yeah, that was, they, they said, what authority do you have to do this? And he said, well, I'm going to prove my authority. I'm going to prove it to you. You destroy this temple and I'll come and I'll, it'll be raised again in three days. Right? And at that point, the, the Jews thought he was an idiot because they thought he was talking about the actual temple the, you know, with its stone blocks and stuff. And they're saying how many years it took to build it and you'll never do it. Right? He's actually talking about his own body. Yeah, that was, this was going to be his final testament to who he was, that God, he really was the Son of God. Right? But if this hadn't happened, what does it, like, if, if the empty tomb was not empty, then that has some very big implications on ourselves for people that want to follow Jesus. Right? Because it means that he lied. Right? Because it means he wasn't the Son of God. 
Because surely if he was the Son of God, God would listen to him and he would have risen him from the dead. So it means he wasn't the Son of God. Right? He was just some deluded idiot that thought that God was listening to him and God agreed with his plan. Right? But it, but it has bigger implications if you think about his whole message. His whole message was that he was the way, the truth, and the life. Right? And he was the only way to the Father. That he was what was going to bring about reconciliation and forgiveness of sins and stuff for mankind. Right? If he didn't raise from the dead, if, Jesus, if God hadn't raised him from the dead and accepted his sacrifice, if it's just all a lie and it's all fake, then we have no hope. Right? If we're still following a dead Messiah, what's the point? He obviously wasn't who he said he was. Right? So Paul is, Paul is correct in saying that we should be pitied beyond all people. If we live for a dead Messiah that never came back to life, right, who just lied about everything, like, what hope do we have? Why are we still following this man? You know, but Jesus did rise from the dead. Like, that's why we're still remembering it. That's why it hasn't gone away yet. Because we still, because he did. And I know there's, some of you are going to be skeptical of, of that, of that fact, right? And I think that's a good thing. It's good to be skeptical, but I encourage you to go away and to study it. To speak with the person that you came with, to, to chat to the person next to you, that there is evidence that, like, this is not a, a, a faith without any facts. This is not an unreasonable, stab-in-the-dark kind of faith. I encourage you to go ahead and have a look at it. But Jesus did come back to life. You know, it confirmed his message that he really was the Son of God, and it confirmed that God accepted his sacrifice as well. But go with me to Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You know, it makes a, it makes a, a really cool point in this, that we, we get a chance to be united with Christ in baptism. But not just in his death, right, which is symbolized by us going under the water of baptism, but also in his resurrection, as we come up out of the water, right? And when we are baptized, we rise to a new life here in this life, right? But when we die, we raise to a new life to go be with God. That there's a resurrection of the dead. That's the central hope of the Christian faith, is it not? That we, that death is not the end. That we go on to be with God. That there's something after death. Now, if Jesus hadn't come back to life, like, how can we believe that there's a resurrection of the dead? Like, how, how can we then hope in heaven and hope in this truth? Jesus came back from the dead and we can be uh, united with him. We can also raise up to a new life and a new resurrection with God. You know, Jesus conquered death. He defeated it. 
you know, Adam and Eve, they died spiritually when they chose to disobey God in the Garden of Eden and they were separated from Him and they, and they were separate from Him spiritually. And their curse was that they were going to die. Right? That is the wages of sin is death. Right? But Jesus conquered death. You know, the Old Testament laid a foundation, as we said, for us to understand Jesus. And Jesus, like sacrifice, was to break that curse. That curse of death that mankind had been under that for all of those thousands of years was accumulated in, in the sacrifice of Jesus because he was the solution to the problem. No, Jesus broke that curse of death. He destroyed that barrier of the cross and he brought about this opportunity that we have today for reconciliation with God. You know, the completion of the restoration, of the restoration process ends with our resurrection to a new life with God. You know, when we accept the message of the cross, we accept our own responsibility in it. You know, that we have caused God this pain by our, by, by our sin, right? And that this is what God endured in order to forgive us. Like when we choose to repent and turn to God, and we're baptized and we unite ourselves with, with Christ, that his righteousness and his holiness becomes ours, and our sins are forgiven, right? And we rise to a new life right, out of the baptism waters, Right, we have a new life at that point, and when we die, we can be we can raise from the dead to go be with God. That is the gospel. That is the good news. You know, and I don't know about you, right? But when I sin, I'm afraid of God a lot of the time. You know, when I sin, I'm I'm worried. I'm I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I want to be like Adam and Eve and hide myself away. You know, it's interesting when you when you read the account of Adam and Eve that they distance themselves from God. Now, it wasn't God that did that to them. They chose to do that. You know, and I can, I can want to feel like that. I can want to distance myself from God out of my own shame, my own fear, my own insecurity, right? And if, if God on the cross was just simply punishing Jesus for my own sin, that's still quite a scary God. But it, it is still quite a scary God to me. Like, you know, this is a God that has to, like, he's so mad he has to hurt his own son. Like, but if the cross is a message of how much it costs God to forgive me, Right, what God was willing to endure in order for me to be forgiven, that's a God that I can trust. Uh, that's a God that obviously clearly cares about me. You know, God has, re- has revealed through, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection his plan to redeem us to himself. You know, it's his plan to make things new. It's his plan to return things back to how they should have been. Back to what they were like in the Garden of Eden. We've gone astray, but this plan is to bring us right back to where we should have been at the beginning. Now, I want to finish by reading from Revelation. If you turn to Revelation chapter 21, you pretty much just go to the end of your Bible and then uh, you'll be there. It reads in verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, And God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost for the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. You know, this is what it's going to be like at the end. This is what it's got. This is the promise of God. You know, God is making all things new. That was his purpose and his plan through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to make everything new. To restore us back to the former glory in a sense that we had. That we can walk and be and spend our eternity with God. You know, that is what is on offer through the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But we have a, we have a choice to make. Do we accept our responsibility in it? Are we willing to accept that we have played a part in this? Are we willing to allow this to change us? Are we willing to do what is necessary to be reconciled with God? You know, I know for myself it's certainly worthwhile. Like, I like the sound of what I'm reading in Revelation. Like, it sounds pretty good to me. Like, I want to be back where I belong. I want to be back where I was intended to be. You know, I want you just to, to bear that in mind today. You know, as we saw at the beginning, you know, plenty of people wear crosses around their necks or tattoo them on their arms or, you know, plenty of people know the cross and see what it is, but they don't know its true meaning. Right, that meaning hasn't changed them. That meaning hasn't, hasn't altered their life. It hasn't led to their reconciliation with God. You know, you have, the, you have an opportunity now to, to be able to make sure that you are reconciled with God. That this hope that we're reading about in Revelation can be yours to have. Right, or you can just let this wa- wash over you again. Right, you know, this is something that happens, isn't it? Because it's an Easter Sunday service. Right, people come on Easter and on, on uh, at Christmas, as, as Scott was saying at the beginning. And then they just carry on with the rest of their lives unchanged. Right, God did not endure that so that you would leave unchanged. Like, God did not endure that so that you would turn up on Sunday like twice a year and just make a, like a, a small effort. Like, God wants a relationship with you. He wants you to be with him in the way that he designed you to be. That's why he enjoyed, sorry, endured all that. Right, this time we're going to pray and then the worship team is going to come up for a final song. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance that we can uh, be here this afternoon just uh, celebrating your uh, son's death, burial, and resurrection, God. I thank you that the sacrifice was uh, sufficient, God, that we can understand from this how much you care about us, Father. We can understand from this how much you love us, God. I pray that we allow this message to change us, God, that we're not uh, dull to the, to the reality and truth of this, God. I pray that we can be men and women who are reconciled to you, God, that we can uh, return to being the very beings that we were created to be, Father, in a, in a life with you. Thank you, Father, that death is not the end, God, that we don't just finish when death comes, God, but we, it's just really the beginning of something better. God, we thank you and we praise you for your love and your kindness in your son's name. Amen. Amen.